All right, if you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We've got a short passage this morning, verses uh, 1. I said short passage, not short sermon, by the way. But a short passage, verses 1 through 4, a very dense, a beautiful passage. Uh, as a guy who grew up in the 80s, I sometimes feel sorry for those, uh, those youngsters who were not around to experience the fashion, the music, the trends, and uh, the innovations of the greatest decade ever. Um, what other generation got to wear parachute pants, leg warmers, pastel-colored fanny packs? Maybe you still have one of those tucked away. And then there was the hair. Uh, here's a picture of my sister, circa 1986, yeah. You can see she had to get up two hours earlier than I did for school to, uh, to tease the hair. And then there were the gigantic shoulder pads. Here's a picture of Janine about 1987. You'll see uh, a picture that I've not uh, gotten permission of. You'll, you'll want to see this, though. So, yeah, she, I don't know, I, I didn't know her then, but I was told that she wore that everywhere, even tried to play volleyball in that one time. So that, uh, that's actually, I Photoshopped that, but she's not here, so I can do what I want. But she's on a road trip with a girlfriend. But, you know, there was a lot about the 80s that was fun to remember. And even if you weren't born in the 80s or you weren't around in the 80s, there's one aspect that you can now enjoy, thanks to Hulu and Prime and uh, Netflix, and that is the entertainment of the 80s. Many people believe, you see some stuff written on this, that the, that the late 80s, early 90s was the greatest era in sitcoms ever. So you had, you had Cheers and you had Friends and you had Frasier and uh, you had the Cosby Show kind of pre-scandal. You had all of these shows um, the uh, Seinfeld, of course, and one of the things that you'll see if you look at those, now if you, if you study those, which I, I realize takes a little bit of the fun out of it, but if you study those, you will find that there's a theme that runs throughout all of these shows that rank on just about every best of list, and that was they, they seem to take people who were wildly different, different personalities and backgrounds and interests and styles, and they united them either, either in the same apartment complex or... Uh, the same precinct or whatever it was, and the show showed how these people could get along, despite all of their idiosyncrasies and their quirks and their differences, and that made for a very sort of popular formula. People very different, but getting along famously. Now, we know, in fact, you, you remember the, the friendship that made friends what it was, hence the title, the theme song to Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. People of every religion, race, background, nationality, and culture value, and we could even say long for, authentic community. A place where we can be ourselves, we can be known for who we are, and yet still loved. Now, we love the idea of a strong, supporting, diverse community, but the practice of committing to real people, people we haven't chosen, who aren't just like us, is not quite as appealing. In fact, we find when we're in a group of people like that, who are different than us, then we, that they think differently, we disagree on things. We disagree on things like masks and politics and uh, shutdowns and, and these sorts of things. So, even though we love the idea of authentic community, some people find it so hard to actually experience or live with that they decide it's impossible and they just keep to themselves. 
Sometimes our ideal of community, that is to say our sort of rose-colored idea of the way we think it should be, can actually keep us from being part of a real flesh-and-blood difficult group of people. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor, Lutheran pastor and a prisoner in Nazi Germany, talked about this in his little book, uh, Life Together. Bonhoeffer wrote, He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. In other words, whenever we say, I'll be part of a church, I'll be part of a small group, I'll be part of a ministry, as long as I can know for sure that I'll never be hurt, I'll never be wronged, I'll never be offended, no one will ever disagree with me, we actually then make real, authentic community impossible because we take ourselves away from the actual possibility of a life-giving community. Now this morning we're going to talk about unity within the community of believers. And you may think, well, we've talked about this before, and you're right, But Paul keeps bringing this up in this letter to the Philippians over and over again. And this morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the reason for unity, the basis for unity, and the reward of unity. So the reason, the basis, and the reward. Let's look at the reason first. I'll read this entire section here, just four verses. Here reads the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syndiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, we've already established, if you've been around for this series, that Paul's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians in the city of Philippi, which was this Roman providence that wasn't actually in Rome. And he's writing to people he calls brothers, beloved, those whom I love. This is not to exclude the sisters in the church, but he's saying this as a way to include all of his siblings in Christ. And he's so sure that these people are actually believers and siblings in Christ that he says, in the passage I just read, their names are included in the book of life. Now, we read about the book of life also in Revelation. It is, the, it is the bound collection of the names of all those people who belong to the Lord. And for those whose names are written in the book of life, their names can never be deleted or omitted or erased. They are there forever. Again, this is the, this is the collection of those who belong to the Lord, those upon whom he has lavished his covenantal affection. Now, if you say, if you're wonder, wondering or worried, is my name in the book of life, you can know for sure You turn from your sin, your self-reliance, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and your name will be written. Your name is written in the book of life. Uh, It'll be a forever fixture there. And Paul is so sure about these believers at Philippi that he says their names are written in the book of life, but among these believers there is trouble in the camp. There's some infighting going on. Apparently there were two women in the church at Philippi who'd had a major falling out. Yodia and Syntyche were their names. We're not told what the issue was or how it started. Uh, Did it start with hurt feelings, harsh words, maybe a misunderstanding, perhaps a breach of confidence? Maybe these ladies had very different philosophies of ministry that sort of drove a wedge between them. 
Or was it just apparent by the way they avoided each other despite pretending everything was okay? Either way, everybody in the church knew about it apparently. These women were leaders in the church. They were not pastors or elders, but they were leaders. They worked side by side, Paul says, with him in the gospel. And Paul calls them out by name in this letter to the whole church. I don't know if you've ever been called out by name in a public setting. Maybe you're a student here and you went to school and you didn't have your work done and and the teacher called on you for an answer and you had no idea where to go. Maybe at your job you, you underperformed or you cut corners or whatever and you were singled out, but it's it's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible thing. Well, imagine this church at Philippi meeting at Lydia's house, this rather large house with small rooms. They're gathered together in one of those small rooms, and they get a letter. A letter is delivered to them from their spiritual father, the Apostle Paul. They all gather around. They're crowded together, shoulder to shoulder, and the letter was meant to be read aloud to everyone. So you're sitting there. You're listening to this letter. You're, you're taking in what the Apostle Paul is saying, and then If you're Yodia and Sentiki, you hear toward the end of the letter your names being uttered aloud in front of the entire congregation. I'm sure it was embarrassing. It it had to to sting. Um, It sounds incredibly harsh. It wasn't really as harsh as it sounds when you understand the ancient context. New Testament scholar Tremper Longman says that Paul handles this issue carefully and, in effect, gently blindsides them in the way that the prophet Nathan exposed David's sin when they hear their names read aloud to the entire congregation. Now again, yeah, of course it would have been embarrassing. And it would have been a shock. I mean, they they had not previewed the letter. There was no ability to do that. They heard the letter for the first time while they're sitting in a room with their fellow believers. But what it does is it reveals just how much Paul cares about the unity of the church so much so that he won't take an ostrich approach and bury his head in the sand. He will lovingly and directly call out sin. And Paul entreats them, or really, I think a better translation is actually begs these ladies to get along. He even calls a mediator, this unknown person he references as his true companion to help sort out this dispute. Now, the reason for this plea, in order for us to understand the reason for the plea, we have to understand you know, go back a little bit in the letter. And again, because this letter was meant to be read at once, it it makes sense. The reason is that Paul has already identified that those who belong to Christ, those who are believers in Christ, are to have the same mind. They are to be humble with each other. They are to put one another's needs ahead of one another. And so the church is to stand out as a place that shines like stars in a dark world, Paul says. How did Jesus say his disciples would stand out? They will know you what? By the love you have for one another. So here's the reason. Here's our first point this morning. The unity of the church serves as a beautiful apologetic for the reconciling power of the gospel. The word apologetic is is, is a Greek word that means defense of. It doesn't mean you're saying I'm sorry. It's saying this is in defense of. This is a This is a validation of the reconciling power of the gospel. So so the gospel is the good news that God is reconciling, which means bringing back into a right relationship those who are estranged, lost, separated from him. In fact, he's reconciling, he says in a different book, the whole world to himself. He is reconciling the world to himself, and he's also reconciling believers with one another. How would a reconciled people stand out 
in a world of abject conflict. Well, I want you to imagine a time in history, and you'll understand, you'll see right away where I'm going with this, but I want you to imagine a time in history when people are at odds with each other over just about everything. And some people are reluctant to say anything because they're afraid that anything they say could be misinterpreted, could be misunderstood, or it could be used against them. What if they don't use exactly the right words? What if their perspective is different than the perspective of the rest of the culture, cultural norm? And some people are discovered to have said things in their distant past that are preserved on social media or by email, written a long time ago in haste or perhaps in immaturity, and they lost their jobs, they lost their careers, and their own families have turned against them. And there's no opportunity to repent. There's no opportunity to be forgiven. And some people live in such a state of angst that they take to social media to start arguments and to cast stones in every direction, attacking one another with their words. Members of the same family refuse to talk with each other because of their political leanings or their differences. And I wrote that on Thursday. I didn't know how true it was until a man came up to me right after the first service and said, my family of eight is divided right in half, and we're not talking to each other. Now imagine in that same scenario, there's also a group of people who get together on a regular basis and they pray for one another. They worship their God together, they eat together, they serve their community, and sure, they say dumb things, and they say mean things, and they hurt each other, but they're quick to forgive one another. They give up their time for one another, and they sacrifice for one another. And they give one another the benefit of the doubt. So, so they believe the best about each other. When they hear something, they don't go down a dark road. Now, they don't agree on everything. They disagree on some things. But they don't let their disagreements divide them. They laugh a lot. They live with joy. They don't seem afraid of the future. And they actually really seem to like being together even though they don't, don't all think the same way about everything. This is so countercultural. This is so radical. It was then and it is now that it will stand out because actually everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be known and loved. And, of course, everybody wants to be given the benefit of the doubt. Everybody wants to be forgiven. Everybody wants to, to receive grace. And so in such a community... These people stand out. Everybody wants to be known and loved. It's a universal longing, and the only way that longing can be fulfilled horizontally is by the church. So Paul publicly begs Yodia and Syndicate to agree, or literally to think the same thing. It's the same phrase, exact same phrase Paul uses earlier in this letter. And it doesn't mean, again, they have to think the same way about everything. It doesn't mean they have to agree on everything. But what he's saying is, I'm pleading with you to think the same way as it relates to Christ, his person, his work, and your mission. So he's saying, I want you to so, be so unified in your mission to be, to be ambassadors of Christ that the things you may be inclined to disagree about, you actually let those things aside. You don't allow those things to build a wedge between you. You are so united on mission that it breeds harmony 
And again, you set aside the things that you might disagree on. Now, this is happening, of course, all over the world. It's happening in our own country, in our own community. If you ever uh, read any about the persecuted church, there's a, a website called opendoors.com, which will tell you some of the latest uh, things that are going on. I read this week that in Iran, in the last few weeks, secret believers delivered hygiene items to their community, the same community which hates Christians. In Sri Lanka, Pastor Shianth and his church passed out groceries to their community, and get this, including the very villagers that attacked their congregation only weeks before. These are the sorts of actions that stand out. This is the way to embrace mission in a way that allows our differences to fall aside. Paul makes it clear that there's no room for division in Christ's church. Now, certainly, there's room for, again, a variety of views. There's room for discussion. There's room for a healthy back and forth, but there's no room for a divisive spirit. While there's always room for messes and failures, and praise God for that, there's no, no room for grandstanding, power plays, politics, prejudice, judgmentalism, and there's no room for unforgiveness. Now, notice the basis of Paul's appeal to these ladies. He says to them in verse 2, I entreat you to agree uh, in the Lord. The, free, the, the, uh, the Greek word is in curio. It's from the Greek word kurios, which is used mostly in the New Testament to refer to the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, I entreat, I'm begging you to get, get along with each other in Jesus Christ. He's appealing to the fact that they are united in Christ. They belong together in Jesus. So here's the basis of our unity, our second point. The basis of our unity is our collective identity. We are kingdom citizens in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, is a phrase of atomic significance. It's an extremely powerful phrase. The idea of identity, which we've touched on before, is so important. When we talk about identity, we're talking about what it is that we believe makes us who we are. What is it that gives us value? What is it that makes us important? What is it that gives us significance? Now, we have to have an identity. So we have to have an identity. We'll pursue that identity in different ways. Maybe you've, you've been watching a football game or something, and, and the commentator will talk about a team that has no identity. And they'll say, you can't win without an identity. Even as human beings, we, we need an identity. And think about all the ways we try to establish that identity. For many, it's by their profession. So what means most to me, what gives me value, what gives me purpose is what I do for a living. For some, it's by a certain skill. Maybe they say, well, I'm, a, I'm an athlete. Right? I was the chaplain for a Division I men's basketball program and what I noticed early on is that there was a clear distinction in, among the team between the athletes and the non-athletes. So the athletes, they had lunch, they had meals together. The men athletes dated the women athletes. The athletes hung around together. And so it was very much their identity. I'm an athlete or you're not an athlete. And my, own, my own kids both played basketball through high school. And, and I remember the day they were done with the season... None of them ever wore any of their stuff that had their team name or whatever. And I asked them one time, like, why don't, why don't you wear, why don't you wear your, your jacket or your hoodie or whatever it is? He said, well, that, that's not, I don't play there anymore. That's not who I am. So for some people, it's, uh, they, uh, they look for identity by the clothes that they wear. And so 
Now, we don't, maybe don't think about this uh, so much on a conscious level, but what are we trying to say about ourselves by the clothing we wear? I am, right, I, I am wealthy. I am a hipster. I am an athlete. I am uh, whatever it is, you know, those things. I, I, I am a country, country boy or whatever, you know, whatever we want to say. I was at the pumpkin farm last night for our church gathering and the song they kept playing over and over on repeat was what the world needs now is a few more rednecks. Maybe you think, you know, I want the world to know I'm a redneck, by the way. And I'm, I don't know how rednecks dress. So I'm not saying, I'm not looking at anybody saying you're a redneck. But maybe whatever it is, I, I, and I want to identify as a certain way by what I wear. Or uh, by the car we drive. We're saying, I am this. I, I didn't know until I got a Jeep that there's a such thing as a Jeep wave. Right? Megan knows this. If you drive a Jeep and you see someone, you, you wave another person in a Jeep. And this is, you know, of course, if you don't have a Jeep, you can't understand it, right? It's not really that difficult, but this is the way it works. You would drive a car as a way to establish identity by the school we've attended or by something in our history. I am a former, whatever, I'm a former Marine. I, I have a friend I went to high school with. Yeah, I knew somebody would say that, yeah. Uh, I was warned by another Marine in the first service, so don't be caught off guard by this. I had a friend who was a, a Marine, uh, in, a friend in high school, he went to the Marines, and after that he's had, I guess he's 50 now, he's probably had 25 different jobs, just one job after another. When he was in the Marines, he hated being in the Marines. When he got out of the Marines, he hated his experience in the Marines. Now I see on Facebook, all he ever posts about is that he's a former Marine, constantly. It's all he posts, former Marine. This, he's looking for something to locate his identity in, and for, them, for him, it has to be this, I am a former Marine. I know uh, I had lunch with a pastor two or three years ago who was retired. In his, he was in his early 70s, and he said, when I retired, after 40-plus years of being a pastor, I was so lost. Like, I had no idea what to even make of myself. And he said, I went, one time I walked in the kitchen, my wife was on the floor, curled up in a ball, sobbing. And she, she admitted, like, I've been a pastor's wife for 40-plus years. I don't know what I am anymore. What is it that we're inclined to locate our identity? And sometimes it's a personality trait. Well, that's just who I am. I'm the sarcastic one, or I'm, I'm the funny one, or I'm a fighter. I'm just an outside-the-box thinker. I just don't think like anybody else. We must have an identity, or we're just floating around. We must have something that makes us feel valuable, important, and we will seek to locate that identity in something. I was reading the memoirs of a secular stand-up comedian recently, and he said this, there are just so many ways we get trapped in trying to create our own identity, to define ourselves or our worth according to what we accomplish. Our actions or letters after our name, if we have a boyfriend or girlfriend who loves us, whatever it is, there are a million traps. They fashion themselves in endless variety. But for the Christian... Our identity, our primary identity is not what we drive or where we went to school or what family we come from or the color of our skin or our nationality or any of those things. Our primary identity is we are in Christ. We are united in Christ. Again, 200 times this phrase appears in the New Testament over and over. We are in Christ. And it refers to our union with Christ. All the benefits that are ours because of our faith, through our faith in Jesus. Michael Horton says this, union, union with Christ is not to be understood as a moment in the application of salvation to believers, 
Rather, it is a way of speaking about the way in which believers share in Christ in eternity, by election, in past history, by redemption, in the present, by effectual calling, justification, and in our future, glorification. In other words, if you are in Christ this morning, let me tell you from the Scriptures what you are more than anything else. You are a child of God who was chosen by God before you were ever born. You are redeemed by God. You belong to Him. You are a citizen of heaven. You are destined for eternity with God. You are righteous, holy, and set apart for God's affection and mission. You are, above everything else, you are in Christ. And these are all things that you are that have nothing to do with what you've achieved. According to how life normally works, right? I must first achieve something before I can be declared to be something. So I have to finish all the coursework and get the degree before I can be declared a graduate. I have to pass all the driving tests and, and, and the written and the driving tests before I can be declared a legal driver. Um, we have a big election coming up. Whoever wins must first garner the electoral college votes, must, be, must be, get the election, win the election before he will be declared the president. Right? I have to go through boot camp before I'm declared to be a Marine. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? I, I, we, we're glad. I'm glad, as a person who has two teenage drivers, I'm glad that you have to go through the tests before you're declared a legal driver. But riding with my kids is a harrowing experience as it is, and they've done all that stuff. I can't imagine if I just gave them the keys without any. It would be a very scary thing. I'm glad that our Marines, like Bob and others, have gone through the requisite training. So that's all very good stuff. However, the gospel follows a different logic flowing from God's grace. It begins with a declaration of righteousness. Again, that has nothing to do with anything I've achieved. Paul makes this point clear in another letter. He says, there's no one righteous, not one. In fact, the Bible teaches that we're all alike, dead in sin. But the Christian is declared righteous. The Christian is credited a righteousness that is not his own. We saw that two weeks ago from Philippians. He's made righteous. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, another Pauline letter says this, God made him who knew no sin or had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I illustrated a couple of weeks ago by using marriage, and I said, it's like this. When we're united to Christ, everything that belonged to me, everything that was mine became Christ. My guilt, my shame, my sinful past, and my condemnation. But everything that belonged to him, that was his, became mine. His righteousness, his perfect obedience, his full life, his glorious future, those things became mine. So what this means as it relates to this passage is God has forgiven us of our sins even though we don't deserve it. He has determined to use us on mission to redeem the world even though he doesn't need us. He has made us his very children and brothers and sisters with one another even though we didn't choose each other. And he is conforming us into the image of his son even though we constantly fail 
and rely on our own strength. And since all of that is true, since all of that is true, then whatever it is that makes us different, male, female, black, white, old, young, Democrat, Republican, Northerner, Southerner, pro-mask, anti-mask, whatever it is, all of those things that we cling to, that we, we think gives us value, that makes us who we are, those things can actually be set aside as non-essential. I mean, not, not non-important, but non-essential in light of our true identity, we are in Christ. This is who we are. We are united in Christ. And when we, set, when we, when we cling to that as our identity, we're able to set aside the other things that may separate us. And again, this is happening all over the world. It's happening, it happened in the first century. Consider the, the story of Philippians, how this church began. God miraculously brings to saving faith Lydia. Lydia was a wealthy merchant, traded in purple cloth, and uh, she was a prominent person. She was well-off. She had a big house. Uh, she ran her own organization. She would be kind of like, you might say, the today's world, kind of the CEO of Pinterest, and she was just a real sort of a mover and shaker. And then God brings to faith a slave girl, a girl enslaved to demonic possession. She was used and manipulated by her owners. She was ostracized from her own family. Uh, she had, by all accounts, was, was, was anti-social, anti-everything. In today's world, she would be the person perhaps uh, dressed in goth, living an alternative lifestyle, perhaps dabbling in Wiccan or some other dark mysticism. Now think about this. Think about the CEO of Pinterest and a teenage girl dabbling in Wiccan, and here they are united. And then on top of that, you have the Philippian jailer. This guy is hard. He's, he's been in more than his share of fights. He's a rough dude. He's so serious about his job that when he believes that he has failed at his job by letting the prisoners go, he contemplates suicide, so his identity is clearly wrapped up in his job. And then he's added to the church at Philippi. Now, if you were to put these types of people in the room together today, all they would do is stare at the floor. They wouldn't look at each other. They wouldn't make eye contact. They would think, I don't even know what to say to this person. And here they are united in this church at Philippi, and they're able to put aside their differences to serve the kingdom. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, what does Paul say throughout this letter? About how encouraged he is by them in their partnership in the gospel because what they share in common is bigger than what makes them different. We, when I was in Southern California, planted a church, and we were in Corona, we planted a church in Riverside, and we wanted to be multi-ethnic, multinational, national, um, and so we sent, as the core group, a Kenyan family, an Ethiopian family, a Latino family, an Anglo family, and an African-American family, and that served as the core group for this church plant. And what God did in Riverside through this church was amazing. People of all kinds of backgrounds being brought to saving faith. People uniting on mission. So this is not some pie-in-the-sky lofty ideal. People of all backgrounds and races and opinions getting along and loving each other. This is actually the reality for those who are in Christ. This is who God has declared us to be and who God is continuing to make us into. When we share the mind of Christ, we unite on mission, we agree on what truly matters, 
then we're bonded together in a supernatural way. It's like glue. Paul would say in the book of Romans, we belong to each other. This is powerful language. We belong to each other. And so I suppose it's a fair time to ask the question, what are you inclined to locate your identity in? Is it your career, your past accomplishments, your family, your children, your education, your physical appearance, your, your goodness, the fact that you are better in your mind than someone else? And what would it mean for you to make all of those things secondary to your identity in order to locate your identity first in your union with Christ? And how would that change the way we see one another? How would that change the way the world is willing to listen to us? Now look at verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now that we've established the context, we'll see that this, this command, Rejoice in the Lord always, is not simply a refrigerator you know, verse or some bulletin board material or some inspirational command. It has to be understood in light of the whole letter and in, in, in light of this particular section. Certainly, it is an imperative. It's something we're commanded to do. doesn't mean that we have to be fake happy all the time. doesn't mean when somebody asks you how you're doing, you always have to say, I'm doing great, when you're really not doing great. doesn't mean you have to, uh, again, to pretend that everything is wonderful, because the reality is it's never like that for anybody. So there's no good in pretending. This is a command to delight in the Lord, His presence, his salvation and his people. But it does seem kind of oddly placed in this letter, doesn't it? I mean, why, why, I don't know if you've ever, you know, read through some of the New Testament books at a time, and you'll maybe, you'll notice a transition there that makes no sense at all. Why would Paul say rejoice in the Lord always right after kind of trying to settle this dispute between two ladies in the church? Why the placement there? Well, let me explain it, but, but I have to kind of go around a little bit to explain it so that it makes sense. Have you ever heard someone say about God, I just have the hardest time trusting in God because of what my dad was like? I have a hard time believing that, God was lo- that God's loving and caring and patient and kind and faithful because of my dad. It just was the opposite. And it's, it's certainly true that an angry, abusive, distant, um, unloving earthly father can make it very challenging for us to see our heavenly father as who, who he truly is, as it truly is, as a loving God. We're actually, as, as earthly fathers, we're supposed to give our children a picture of God's grace. I mean, certainly imperfectly, but we're to give our children a picture of God's grace. Perhaps the best parenting book that I've ever read, at least it's up there in the top five, is by Scott Keith. It's called Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace. And in it, uh, Keith makes the point that fathers are in a unique position to get across the gospel, literally the favor of God on account of Christ or grace, fathers are in a thousand ways the only representative of something other than law, rules, earning, failure, guilt, judgment, shame, and the rest. That is a father's primary calling. To embody, to picture, to mirror the very grace of God to our children. Now, there's way too much in there to unpack for this sermon. We'll cover it in a different sermon. But what he's saying is that, again, we have been, as fathers, we are supposed to, created to, 
actually mirror the grace of God to our children. Unconditional acceptance. Our children should know that they're not loved by us based on their performance or their behavior, whatever it is. And God loves these pictures. Think about marriage. There's this incredible passage in, in Ephesians where Paul says, and it's, so, it's, it's amazing to me, every time I read it, he says, okay, he lays out the very specific ways that husbands and wives should relate to each other. This is how husbands and wives are to get along. And he says, oh, by the way, actually, I'm actually really talking about Christ in the church. And we say, well, how is that? He says, it's a mystery. What he's saying is, by virtue of marriage, the, the, the vertical purpose of marriage is for us to actually mirror, to show one another and the world what it means to love one another the way God intended, what God's love for his own people is like, what God's covenant is like for his own people. Now you say, okay, what does that have to do with this passage? Well, I told you, let me, I had to go around it a little bit. Here's, again, with this, keeping in mind this idea that God loves pictures. The church is designed, the church is designed to picture God's acceptance of broken sin-cursed, imperfect people. So, when we as sin-cursed, imperfect people accept one another, receive one another, embrace one another, forgive one another, we're actually showing off, we're actually giving a picture of God's acceptance of us in Christ. Here's the final point as it relates to the reward of unity. The acceptance of God mirrored in the acceptance of our spiritual family, produces lasting joy. When we are accepted by our brothers and sisters in Christ, despite our failures, despite our setbacks, despite our disagreements, despite our quirks and sin tendencies, we are able to grasp experientially the acceptance we enjoy by God in Christ, and that necessarily leads to joy. Now let me, let me illustrate it this way. I had a young lady approach me a few weeks ago after the service, and this is an illustration I'm sharing with permission. And she, she said, she just listened to a message from a couple weeks ago, and she shared with me that when she was a teenager, she got pregnant by her boyfriend. They were both 18. They weren't married. And Despite the fact that she and her boyfriend were broken and repentant, her church shamed her over that sin. They didn't say she wasn't a Christian, but they made it very clear she, she was not going to be able to enjoy an intimate relationship with God anymore because of her sexual sin. She even voluntarily went before the church, confessed her sin and sought forgiveness, and yet the church made it very clear that she was not going to be used by God anymore. Church, in her words, made her feel like a loser, an outcast. She was made to feel as though she would now be, God would now be perpetually disappointed with her. He'd never be happy with her again. They didn't celebrate her baby because they didn't want to, quote, glorify the sin. Well, understandably, this filled this young lady with angst and feelings of rejection. She couldn't rejoice in the Lord because she thought God was unaccepting of her. From 18 until her late 20s, she lived with guilt and shame, wondering what she could ever do to regain God's approval. What she could ever do 
to show God that she was worthy of being loved and used by him. She said to me when she came up to me again at the end of the service, she said, if I'd only known God's grace then, it would have changed my life entirely. Now, I want you to think about the difference it would have made if this young, in this young lady's life if her church accepted her, if they loved her and walked alongside her through that journey, if they modeled God's approval of her. I'm not talking about ignoring sin. I've already said, we've already looked at why it's so important. Even the Apostle Paul, by way of a letter, addresses sin. I'm not talking about ignoring sin. I'm talking about receiving the repentant with joy and open arms. I'm talking about letting other people know, yeah, you're broken and you're sinful, and I am too. You have failed God. You know what? So have I. You have broken relationships. You have, you have disobeyed God's law. You know what? So have I. So have I. We receive one another. We accept one another in Christ. Now imagine if that young lady had been treated that way. She would have been able to rejoice in the Lord in light of the gracious acceptance she received by her church. There's a reason that the most beautiful letter ever written, the most gospel-centered letter ever written, includes this phrase. This is the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul who writes in Romans 15, 7, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. To rejoice in the Lord is to resist the instinct to focus on either our problems, our failures, our deficiencies, or the differences that set us apart, or the failures, setbacks, deficiencies, and sins of others. And instead, we rest so completely in God's finished work in Christ And we savor the relationships that he has given us, those true brothers and sisters in Christ, that our hearts are persuaded that in that we have all we need and we can rejoice. And how beautiful would it be if the church of Jesus Christ modeled God's acceptance, modeled God's love and acceptance in such a way That when we were together, we knew, we experienced, we could sense and feel the very acceptance of God. This is how, in part, we'll be able to rejoice in the Lord always. And this is why verse 4 cannot be disconnected to verses 1 through 3. How beautiful would it be if the church of Jesus Christ modeled for one another that love and acceptance of God? It might have the same effect it did in ancient Rome. It might very well turn the world upside down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that in Christ we are fully, completely, and gloriously accepted by you. And thank you that your acceptance doesn't wax and wane. You are no mercurial God. One minute mad at us, the next minute loving us. Your love is steadfast. You delight in us in Christ, not because we've done anything or because we haven't done something, but because we belong to you, because ours is a righteousness that comes from without. Ours is a righteousness we receive as a gift. And Father, we praise you this morning that our worth is not tied up in what we own or what we've accomplished or what other people think of us, or how strong we are, or what our background is. Our worth is inextricably tied to 
the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which makes us, which unites us with Jesus and makes us brothers and sisters together. God, will you give us the grace to believe it and to live in light of it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.